Amen. Um, I love watching that story. I was in that group with Pranith and um, a few other guys, um, and it's such a joy to be able to, and it's going to sound weird, it's such a joy to be able to step out and know that Pranith is just there to lead that group and lead it well. And why that's so exciting is because the Lord's led me and Jess were leading different groups on a different night of the week, and um, junior high and senior high have started, and so either I would have had to kind of try and figure out how to balance four groups, or I needed to step out of one, and so it's it's just amazing to see how the Lord is working in Praneeth, and I, I, I miss that group. If you're a man, and you, on Thursday mornings, have time off, they, I know that they've got room in their group, and I, I don't know what time it's at anymore. I, I've just so fully left that group. But I'd encourage you to consider joining that group because it's a blessed group of brothers. Um, and I, I want to tell you, when I, when I look at that, I, I get so excited at what God is doing. Um, I, it, it's so clear that the Holy Spirit is moving in mighty ways at our church. Um, last week after I preached, I actually had someone come up and, and share with me um, not a victory story, but a, a story about how the Holy Spirit was convicting them. And it was a story of repentance. Um, and that's, that's a good thing. Um, they weren't telling me, look at what God did through me. They, they were telling me, I, I felt a pull from the Spirit, and I said no. And it, it was sad at first. And then as we talked about that, realizing they were repenting and they were sharing and confessing, I, I don't want to be that person anymore. And so, so the prayer for them was that, that the next time the Holy Spirit prompts them, that they wouldn't fall that same way, that they would step in and follow after and have faith in the Spirit. And I, I, I don't tell that story to, to cheapen it, but to say I'm praying for that person, that they would take that next step, because that's what we're called to do. Um, when, I, when, I, when I look at the, the book of Acts, which is where we're at today, we're in our witness series, series, the ongoing acts of the Holy Spirit, one of the things that I want to make sure everyone knows, um, and if you're not reading the curriculum, you probably haven't heard this yet, or hopefully you have, I don't know, um, but the, the main character of the book of Acts is not the apostles. Um, there, there are, depending on what Bible translation you have, um, it might even call the book the Acts of the Apostles. ESV study Bibles, I, I love the ESV, but ESV study Bibles don't mention the Holy Spirit in their description of the book of Acts, depending on which one you have. Um, that floored me when I first realized it, because the book of Acts is not about Peter. It's not about Paul. It's not about any individual person. It's about the ongoing ministry of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And today we're going to look at someone who was not one of the original apostles and how the Holy Spirit works through them in a time of chaos and in a time of danger to bring the gospel to new people. And, and I, I just want to encourage you as we go into this to not miss that part of the heart of, of the story of Acts is this beautiful story of how God through the Holy Spirit can work through anyone who is willing and responds. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And, and to start, I'd like to open us in prayer. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this day. Um, Lord, we thank you for the awesome privilege that we who were sinners and had no right to stand before you because you sent your son and he died in our place for the forgiveness of our sins and he rose again to prove that it was true because you sent your son and he did that and he rose again. And he is from the line of David, and he reigns forever. Because of your son, Jesus, we have access to you through the Holy Spirit. We can have right hearts before you. We can turn to you. We can live for you. Just like the apostles who first 
followed you and first saw you at the resurrection. We have the same access to the same spirit. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we pray that as we open your word this morning, that your spirit would be speaking to us and through us. I I pray, Lord, that these would be your words, not mine. I pray you would give us all ears to hear. I pray that where we need to be convicted, where we need to repent, I pray that we would. I pray we would not simply try and rebrand ourselves, but that we would truly repent, we would truly turn to you, that, that we would not stay where we are when we are in sin, but instead we would seek to follow after you well. I pray that you would go before this message and that you would speak to each of us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now when we open the passage today, we're going to be in Acts 8, um, but we do have to talk a little bit about what's come right before this, because the first thing we're going to see is that Saul approved of an execution. And the execution that Saul approved of, we're not going to talk about Saul at all today, except that he approved of an execution. But see, the early church starts, Acts 1, Jesus says, you will, be, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit and power, and you will be my witnesses. And then in chapter 2, they're filled with the Spirit. And then in chapter 3, they go, and they, they've been witnessing in chapter 2, and they keep witnessing in the temple. And the, the people, the, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, it's like 70-some religious leaders, just actively hate what's happening. First, they're annoyed, then they're angry, and they start threatening the Christians. And then they start threatening them more. They throw them in prison, and eventually things burst to burst over, and and they have to, or in their minds, they have to take action. But what's interesting is if you remember, in Acts 1, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And at the end of Acts 7, the gospel has not gone beyond the walls of Jerusalem. But, but it's permeated every corner of Jerusalem because there's this guy named Stephen and there's a guy named Philip and there's five other guys who are what we call Hellenistic Jews. They, they are either men who came into the Jewish faith or they are Jews who were from more of a Greek background. They are not like the, the Jerusalem Jews who were the Pharisees who were the top of the top. They would have looked at them and been like, they are so much less than us. And, but, but the gospel has spread to them. And there's this guy named Stephen who is preaching in the streets, and he's preaching with power. He is witnessing, and, and people don't even know how to respond to him. And, and the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders as a whole, are so angry about it that they bring Stephen before them on trumped-up charges. This should sound familiar. It should sound exactly like what happened to Jesus. Because if we are Christians and we follow after Jesus, part of the cost of that, Jesus said, you must take up your cross daily. Following after Jesus comes with a cost. And, and, and so Stephen is following. And, and what's amazing is when Stephen stands before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the people of Israel, and it's important to note at that time, the religious leaders were also their political leaders. For the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin was their ruling class. And yes, they were underneath the Romans, but they thought of the Romans as people that God would eventually move on. And they saw their divine right to rule coming from God. And as they stood there before this man, it says that his face shone like an angel and they were afraid of him. And so he is paralleled to Moses and he's paralleled to to these Old Testament prophets. And do you know what he does? He who this Holy Spirit has entered, who is a part of the new temple, the place where heaven and earth meet, he stands in the judgment area of the temple and he judges those in the temple who think they have authority to judge. And God in chapter 7 of Acts judges that the leadership of the temple is invalid. 
And he tells them that. He, he puts them on trial as they put him on trial, and he rejects what they are saying, and he cries out to them to repent and follow after Jesus. And just like when Jesus was on trial, the end result is the death of Stephen. But there's a difference. When Jesus was on trial, if you remember, they tried to do things legally because they didn't have the authority to put someone to death in the way that they wanted to with Jesus. And, and with Stephen, they become so angry at this Hellenist Jew who's not really a Jewish Jew. He's not good enough. They become so angry that they stone him to death. And before they stone him, there was an important custom of the day. When, when you were going to stone someone, you would give them the opportunity to repent and to ask for forgiveness of their sins. And do you know what Stephen says? Stephen says, forgive them of their sins, Father, just like Jesus did on the cross. And so at that moment, they, in their rage, they kill him. They stone him. And the whole time, when you read that story, the thing that stands out is at no point is Stephen afraid. At no point is the Holy Spirit not acting, because in that moment, the Holy Spirit is doing a new work. The gospel has gone to Jerusalem. Now let's see where else it goes. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now this is important to note, we'll talk about it in a minute. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. We're going to talk about Saul in two weeks, but let me just tell you that in the early church, there was no one, or in the early times of the church, there was no one who hated the Christians more than Saul. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. As we start to look at persecution, the Bible doesn't spend a whole lot of time on what the persecution looked like. Do you know what it spends time on? Persecution led to the spreading of the gospel. The Holy Spirit uses persecution to advance the mission of Jesus from Jerusalem onto all Judea and Samaria. If the intent of the religious leaders and Paul Saul was to put an end to this Christian music and to use a show of force against it, the end result was the exact opposite because the gospel spreads out into Judea and into Samaria, which is the original mission that Jesus had for his disciples when he ascended. And I, I want to pause here for a moment. Our big idea today, we're going to talk about repentance and rebranding and the difference and why we need to repent and not rebrand. But before we talk about that, I want to point out, and I want to just spend a moment on this. I hear things from Christians all the time that make me think that Christians are terrified of persecution. And then I open my Bible. And when I open my Bible, it's not that I'm thinking, yeah, let's get persecuted. But then I open my Bible and I read in the book of Acts, and do you know what happens when the disciples are threatened by the religious leaders in Jerusalem? They pray for boldness and they rejoice that they were accounted, allowed to suffer in the same way that Jesus suffered. When they're put in prison, they pray and they go out and they keep preaching and they do whatever they feel the Spirit is leading them to do, despite the fact that over and over it leads to increased persecution. And so Christians, I want to tell you today that one of the things that I think is a lie of, it's just, I don't know what to do with it. It's just, we live in this comfortable world where we don't want things to get worse from the standards of the world. And when I look at the early church, they welcomed persecution because they knew it was a sign that they're following the Lord well. And so I want to make sure to say this. I want to make sure to say this now because like a number of days from now is an election and a sad reality is that 
There are people who will base how faithful they are on who wins that election. And God in heaven who reigns in the Holy Spirit that he has given us is not concerned about who wins and loses that election. Yes, he's concerned because he's sovereign over all. But God's church is not going to be stifled by leaders who are against or who are for Christianity. God's church is going to move because the Holy Spirit is going to move. The Holy Spirit will use persecution. And I make sure to say this on the front end. Because this is such an important thing. It's so important that we understand this. I'm going to stress this over and over for a minute because church, persecution is something that we just, it's just the modern picture of the world is we need to be comfortable. We need to, we need to fight for our side. The, the modern picture of what we're doing is not at all the same as the picture of the kingdom of God. We're being asked to pick a side and the kingdom of God says both sides are not, like flip it upside down. The values of this world do not match the values of the kingdom of God. And if we are living for the kingdom of God, neither side is going to welcome us in with open arms. That's not me saying you should vote one way or another, because as soon as I talk about this, we start talking about politics. But it is me saying that if you are defined by your political affiliation, you are not defined by Christ. Okay? And I I say this, and I spend time on this, because after the last election, I heard Christians say, man, it's good to be able to talk about our faith openly again. And I wanted to throw a Bible at them. I wanted to just thump them with a Bible because I could not believe that people would say that. Church, persecution is not something we should fear. We should fear not standing and witnessing Jesus. We should fear not following the prompting of the Holy Spirit. We should live, or we should fear not living a life of repentance and following after the Lord. Because the early church, when they were persecuted, they rejoiced. And we're going to see picture after picture of that in the early church. You go in the Old Testament and you see whenever Israel had armies come against it and whenever they felt that persecution and whenever the people humbled themselves and prayed to the Lord and whenever they looked to the Lord and recognized that he was the authority, the Lord delivered them. And the deliverance that that we are invited into through the Holy Spirit is a deliverance far greater than just living a comfortable life. Stephen, at the end of his life, was not sitting there thinking, man, I've been persecuted. This is terrible. He was thinking, Lord, I get to follow in your footsteps, and thank you for that. And the early church knew and understood that, and it is important that we do the same today. Let me also say, it's really easy to say that from the comfort of the stage, not from a situation where I'm being actively persecuted. Um, right? It's just, it is. But at the same time, as a church, I just want to encourage you that if we're not being persecuted, if we're not sharing our faith to the point of it's rubbing people the wrong way and it's putting us in positions where, where, where we're being forced to make decisions that we're going to continue doing this, it might be a sign we're not really doing anything. The passage goes on. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, this Philip, remember how I said earlier the, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem? Well, there was a disciple by the name of Philip. Um, and so we have to just acknowledge this is not that Philip. This is the Philip who, when Stephen was one of seven men that the, the early church put in charge of making sure of the Greek or Hellenistic widows were given what they needed um, because there was a dispute that arose in the church where the Jewish widows were getting what they needed, but it wasn't always making it to everyone. And so the apostles appointed Stephen, five others, and a guy named Philip. So we know that this Philip is not... <laughs> we know that this Philip is not the one who is the disciple of Jesus. This is the Greek or Jewish-Greek Hellenistic Philip 
that, that would have been working to make sure that the widows got things. And when the dispersion, the scattering happened, he went to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. And it's important to note this because today we aren't talking about a story of one of the original apostles of Jesus. We're talking about someone who became a believer after that, who is now out doing signs and miracles in the name of Jesus. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. When Philip comes, he comes in the same way that in the book of Luke we would have seen when Jesus entered a region. Philip is doing the same thing empowered by the Holy Spirit. But Philip is not preaching himself. He's preaching Jesus the Christ, the King. And what's important to note, um, we're talking about Samaritans right now. And so when Philip is preaching to them, one thing we have to understand is that the Samaritans and the Jews really hated each other. And one of the main reasons why was a very religious reason. The, The Samaritans believed that Genesis through Deuteronomy, first five books of the Old Testament, were the only ones. And their understanding of of their faith was that that God worked through that. And now the, you, you see this in the story of the, the woman at the well in John 4. There was a mountain where they worshipped. And they said Jerusalem was not the right place to worship. But the Jews said, we got Genesis through the end of the Old Testament. These are the divine books of God. And so they had arguments. But both people groups believed that there was a Messiah or a Christ coming. And so when Philip starts preaching the Christ to them, coming from Jerusalem to them, but coming in this more Hellenistic way, I believe that they might have responded to him better than if he was a Jerusalem Jew. In fact, we see in Luke, there's one instance where when Jesus comes and performs a sign, the people send him off. But, but we don't know if that's exactly what's going on here. But at the same time, we see that Philip is is doing very similar things to Jesus and proclaiming Jesus. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, people are paying attention to him. And then we learn about who they used to pay attention to. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. He sounds kind of arrogant. Um, They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Now, an important thing, we are reading this as reported by Luke. And I think that Luke really focuses on the magic side of this for a reason, and we're going to talk about it in a little bit. But I I do want to point out when it says that the people from the least to the greatest said, this man is the power of God that is called great. I believe that what we're seeing, I believe that the Samaritan people are wondering if this is the one who Moses may be prophesied about. Because Moses said, there will be one like me, but greater who comes. And it's Jesus. But for the Samaritan people, there's this guy named Simon who is amazing them, who is doing these things in their presence. So when they say, this man is the power of God that is called great, they're still trying to fit him into Genesis through Deuteronomy. But Luke is not letting us have that because he keeps saying magic, magic. He's, he's trying to draw our attention to the fact that this guy is not really doing the things that maybe he's claiming to do. But for the Samaritans, I think they're trying to fit him into their Genesis through Deuteronomy theological worldview. And they were paying attention to him because he had amazed them. But 
When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. They turn away, they repent from following after this other guy, and they start following after Philip. In fact, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. He was amazed. The Holy Spirit upends the best of what the world has to offer in this story. The people were seeing Simon do these amazing things, and they were amazed by him, and they paid attention to him. And now Philip comes, not one of the original disciples, just someone who followed after Jesus after the resurrection, and they see him in action through the Holy Spirit, and they turn away from what Simon had offered them, and they turn towards Philip, and towards the Holy Spirit, and towards Jesus, they believe and they are baptized in his name. And this is an amazing story for us to think about today, because one thing I want to tell you, church, is that one of the hardest things, working with youth especially, something I hear from our youth a lot, is that we need to respect people's other views if they don't agree with ours, and we need to kind of leave them where they're at. Because it's not our place to change them, and it's not our place to come in and do something. But, But the Holy Spirit tells us that We might be intimidated because people believe other things, but the Holy Spirit offers something far, far better. Jesus and the cross and the grace that we have through him is far greater and better than anything of this world. And we're going to talk in a minute about Simon and his magic because some of you might be wondering, well, he's a magician and what does that mean? And we're going to talk about it, but but I want to make sure it's clear from the start of what we are talking about that the Holy Spirit at no point is like, like this isn't like when, when Moses and Aaron contend with the Egyptian magicians in, in Exodus. It's just like overridden immediately. This power is so much greater that even Simon follows after them. Do you see that no one is sitting here saying, well, you know, that's pretty cool, but the other guy did cool stuff too. No, they're being baptized into this new me- message of the King Jesus and, and the Christ. Now, the next thing that happens, now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, or they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, for he had not yet fallen on any of them is a really interesting phrase, Um, and, and there are whole religious denominations that have splintered off because of this. And I'm going to talk about this as best as I can. I had a great conversation with Rich about this this week, um, because some people believe that the Holy Spirit comes on us in a separate way from where we get baptized, we become believers, we accept Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit comes at some later point in time, and we have to have that second baptism in order to be saved. And they use passages like this to explain it. And so I'm going to do my best to explain why I don't think that's the case. I believe that when you accept Jesus Christ into your heart as Lord and Savior, when you believe that, that, that's because the Holy Spirit has responded to you and you've, you've had that revealed to you and you're responding to the Holy Spirit in the first place. When you are baptized, you are showing people what you've already believed internally. And for the most part, I believe that's how the Holy Spirit works. In the book of Luke, if we look at this and say this is the pattern, because what happens next John, Peter and John, they lay their hands on the Samaritans and they receive the Holy Spirit. Some people believe that you have to have someone lay their hands on you to receive the Holy Spirit. The problem with that is the Bible. 
That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in this instance to the Samaritans, that is exactly what happened. But we're going to look at a story next week where as Peter is preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on people. We're not told every time the Holy Spirit comes that the Holy Spirit comes to people because of the laying on of hands. Instead, we see that the Holy Spirit works in many different ways. So why do I think that the Holy Spirit had not fallen on any of them? Well, the best place I can go for this is to go right back to the story of the woman at the well because it's our best quick example of what I think is at stake in belief here. The, the Samaritans believed that the Messiah would come to their temple on their mountain, the, a mountain that was referenced by Moses in the Old Testament. The Jews believed that Jerusalem was Zion, the city of David, the city where Jesus would come from. And these two options don't coexist very well together. And the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus even says in John, he says, salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. He is the Messiah. It comes from there. And so when we see this story where where the Holy Spirit has not yet fallen on the Samaritans, I believe what is happening here is that God is making it clear through the initial story of the conversion of the Samaritans that, that a huge part of that story is that salvation is going to begin to come from Jerusalem. And you might say, well, Philip came from there too. Yeah, but Philip didn't start there the same way. And and I, I believe what's happening in this story is we are seeing how the Lord is bringing the Samaritans in fully. But he's saying in order to be brought in fully, you can't just say, well, we'll just keep our, our normal thing. You've got to be brought into the full scope of Scripture. You've got to have Isaiah. You've got to have the, all the prophets. You've got to have all this other stuff that you guys discount. Because Jesus referenced it. You can't follow him and ignore half the things he wrote. Or more than half. But, or half the things he referenced that were written through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is part of the triune God. There we go. Uh, but but the, the point of this is that when people say, well, you have to have someone lay their hands on you and receive the Holy Spirit, they are making this story prescriptive of it. Of what we receive with the Holy Spirit. And the problem with that is that then you read other stories in Acts where the Holy Spirit comes in different ways and you say, well, if this is the pattern, then those other stories are wrong, but they're also in the Bible. Luke does not spend a lot of time on, here's exactly how the Holy Spirit comes. Instead, he spends time on, can you see what the Holy Spirit does? Can you see how amazing the Holy Spirit is? Can you respond to the Holy Spirit in action? And that, that's what we're called to do. And so I spend time on this Because I regularly hear believers talk about the Holy Spirit, and we make it this nebulous thing. And there's a reality that parts of it, we're not told exactly how the Holy Spirit works, but we are told how the Holy Spirit works in us. When the Holy Spirit comes is something that scholars can debate all they want, but but what matters is do you have the Holy Spirit? We're going to see next week that in the story, the moment where we say these believers are believers is because they receive the Holy Spirit. Because that's what matters is, has Jesus come into your life? Are you right before God? Is your heart right before God so that the Holy Spirit can enter you and so that you can be a witness and follow in the power that Jesus has offered us? Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. When I read that, when I read that phrase, I have this immediate moment of, I mean, the offering money is bad, but it seems like his goal is good, right? Because Acts 1.8, 
You will receive the power, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He's saying, so that I can lay the so I can lay hands on others and they can receive the Holy Spirit. Isn't that right? Of course it's not right, because he's offering money. And the fact that he's offering money tells us a couple important things. One, it tells us that he is approaching God and the Holy Spirit and his relationship with Jesus by the values of the earth. He's saying, I want to gain in the kingdom. We saw this last week. I want to gain in the kingdom of God, so I'm going to give things. And maybe he's going to give everything. But at the same time, he thinks that he can earn this. He thinks that he can take action to receive this. He thinks that the things of this worth are worth value in the kingdom of heaven. And he's wrong. He's wrong. And on top of that, when he says, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit, the thing we have to think about is, well, if he thinks it costs money, how is he going to go about dispersing it? But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. The Holy Spirit is not for you. You have no lot or part in this matter. You are not a part of this community for your heart is not right before God. And when Peter says your heart is not right before God, what is he saying? He's saying that earlier when we saw Simon believed, we, Simon didn't really believe because if he really believed, his heart would be right before God and he wouldn't be offering money. He'd be rejoicing that he was going to receive the Holy Spirit. He has missed the whole message. And so then we, we, we read this and then we think back to what did he do after he became a believer and after he was baptized? He followed Philip around. And we have to start to wonder why. Well, I think what's happening is, is Simon is trying to figure out how do I get a hold of that power? Because I was a person of influence before. Everyone thought that I was great before. If I get a hold of this, this amazes me. If I get a hold of this, how much can I amaze others? And it's warped. And his heart is not right before God. Peter goes on, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I, I, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You don't understand the cross and the resurrection at all. You don't understand who Jesus is at all. When Peter says to him, repent, and says, pray to the Lord, I, I, I want to tell you, church, when we read this in modern times, this seems so harsh. But then when you think about it, what would have been harsh and wicked and wrong of Peter is if he would have said, hey, keep following us for a while and let's see what changes. Peter tells him to his face what's wrong. He says, you think that you can buy this, and because of that, I know that your heart is not right. The place where you're at right now, I have to reject. You cannot be a part of this community if you're coming in on these terms. No, repent. Pray to the Lord. He tells him exactly what he needs to do. Simon, do you know what you need to do? You need to repent and pray to the Lord and ask the Lord to help work in your heart to forgive your sin. He gives him a really clear roadmap on what to do. And what does Simon say? I committed I wasn't going to say Simon say or Simon says. Sorry, everyone. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And it's here that we see how wrong Simon was. Pray for me to the Lord. What did Peter just tell him to do? Pray to the Lord. What does he respond with? You pray to the Lord for me. He does not 
want to be right before God. He wants the power, the influence. He wants what God is offering, with, but on his own terms. He also says that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Um, I studied this out a lot, and the conclusion I came to was he quite literally does not understand a word Peter just said. Peter says, your heart is like this. You have not received forgiveness of sins. You are in the gall of bitterness and iniquity. And he responds, let none of this happen. He's in denial. He's like, that's not true of me. Let Pray that it won't happen to me. And Peter's like, we don't know what Peter says, actually, because it goes on. They, we just move on from this story after this. We don't learn anything else about Simon at all. But I want to point out that, that to me, when I read this, the thing that stands out to me is that what the Holy Spirit rejects is those seeking to rebrand rather than to repent. Because what does Simon do? He sees his power and he says, I want to be a part of that on my terms. So he says, I believe, and, and while other people just are, are baptized and, and believe, he starts following Philip around. And when he sees the power in person in, in Peter and John, he says, I want that, and he tries to buy it. And then when they tell him, repent, pray to the Lord, he says, you do that for me. In every situation, he doesn't respond the way he's really supposed to. And, and, and we see that over and over again, because what he's focused on is trying to figure out how to have esteem before humans. That's, that's what we see. And, and I, can, I can tell you a few things. Um, this, it's, not in, it's not in the workbook, and I'm really sad it's not in the workbook, but I didn't discover it until we were in like, the editing process of the workbook, and I was really sad about it. Um, but, but Simon the Magician, this man that we read about in Acts 8, I believe when Luke wrote Acts 8, Luke assumed that a good portion of his audience would already know who Simon the Magician was. You see, the early church, this is from the NAC, the New American Commentary on the Book of Acts. The early church fathers tell of a heretical Gnostic sect of Simonians in the second and third century, Simonians, followers of Simon, who trace their beliefs back to the Simon of Acts. The earliest account is that of Justin Martyr, who was an early church father and who was from a Samaritan background. Um, and he dated his rise to acclaim in the reign of Claudius, Justin the Martyr spoke of Simon's journey to Rome where he was worshipped as a god and had a statue erected to him with the inscription to the holy god Simon. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. It's sick. It's sick. And in this story, you're, you're, when we read this in light of what we know about history, and there are arguments that it was or wasn't this Simon the Magician. I think it was because of what we see from the early church fathers. And if it wasn't him, there were at least people who picked up on that story and built him up into something he wasn't. But it's sick to realize that the reason he wanted the Holy Spirit and the reason he wanted to follow was to make his own name great. And when it didn't work, he sought other ways to make his own name great. And eventually, he had a statue erected in his honor, calling him a god. And it's just sick. Now, when they had testified, Peter and John and Philip, and spoken, testified also, word for witness, and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. At the end of this story, the most important thing, I think, is that we see that the gospel has spread to the Samaritans. And after they reached this city, and saw that the people were receiving the Holy Spirit, their whole way back, 
They keep saying, here, look at how the Holy Spirit is at work. And they, they keep spreading the gospel to more Samaritans. No longer do they pass by them. Now they say they need to hear this message too. The Holy Spirit upends the best of what the world has to offer. The Holy Spirit rejects those who are seeking to rebrand rather than repent. And, and this idea of rebranding rather than repenting, this is where we're going to close. And I want to talk about this a lot. Um, because one of the first things I want to I talk about with this, um, when I read this passage and I think about who are the Simon the Magicians in our modern world, um, the first thing I think is that Simon the Magician can be people who are in the church who are in there for their own ends. There's a lot of people who are in the church because of what they gain from it. And I don't mean what they gain in salvation and relationship with God through it. I mean they're in it for the way it makes them feel and the respect and power that they get from being a part of a body of believers where, where they just feel good about who they are in it. And I talked about this last week, how it's a trap that we can easily fall into. It's one that I can easily fall into. But there are people who do not follow after God for the forgiveness of sins, but follow after God because it makes them feel kind of good. And it's people like that that I think are rebranding, that are not really trying to follow the God of the Bible. They're trying to say, well, I, I want to feel good about where I'm at, and this is a good way to do that. And the problem with that is if you're doing that, you're not repenting. You're, you're trying to frame yourself as something, man, I want to be a good person. I want people to think I'm a good person. I want people to think well of me. You're branding yourself in a certain way or rebranding yourself. And I want to take this a big step further. When I think about where I see Simon the Magicians in our modern culture, I know a lot of people would say, well, it's people of other religions. It's the Wiccans. It's the Satanists. It's people who practice magic or witchcraft or all these different things. But I want to tell you the place that I see it the most, the place that I see it the most is when I, when I open up my, my Apple podcasts and I go down, I scroll to religion and spirituality and I scroll down and I go to Christian, I click on that one and I look, see all. And I notice that two thirds of them are prosperity gospel. And it's just absolute garbage. It's people who say you follow Jesus because if you follow God, God wants to give you everything in your life that you want. Everything you desire is from God, so it's good. And they, they prey on people by saying, if you give, God will bless you for giving. Instead of saying, God already blessed you with all of it. They, they don't look at the Bible as something that, that causes us or calls on us to repent. And the best example I can give of this, and, and I'm, I'm not going to name names of pastors because I'm going to be careful here because I don't have time to fully study out every pastor, but the one thing that I want to make sure to say is that there are movements like the Word of Faith movement where, where people are taught that if you believe hard enough, you won't ever be sick. Because if you have enough faith, there's passages in the Bible where it says God will heal us. Never mind what it's talking about in context, but there's passages that out of context should make us feel really good about following God. And there's passages that we can misapply to tell us that God will give us whatever we need in this life and we can turn needs into our wants because if you want something, therefore you need it, therefore God has to give it to you if you follow after him. And there are people that cheapen God so much and cheapen the Bible so much and don't even bother opening the Bible. There's this phrase I'm going to use. It's called Bible adjacency. We're supposed to stand on the Bible. We're supposed to follow after the God of the Bible instead of standing on cheap side things. But what I see over and over in Christian culture and what I see not Christian culture as in churches, what I see over and over in this broad culture that I see that's defined as Christian culture, unfortunately, by the world, is I see these invitations to Bible adjacency where we're talking about, well, he mentioned Jesus. Jesus is, you know, who I root for. Therefore, it's good. 
It may not be what I like, but it's good. But the problem is, is that there is so much junk with this. A, a year or two ago, there were all of these prosperity gospel big name people. And there's this documentary that came out about them that, that outlined how wicked they were by someone who, who claimed to be a Christian and who said, I'm so sick of watching this. And they were a family member of one of these prosperity gospel preachers. And they called them out. And do you know what happened? Initially, we started to see some of these prosperity gospel people make statements of what initially they said, I repent. And, and then at first I was kind of excited because there's one big name in particular that was like, man, it would be really exciting because of how influential this speaker is. And I was so excited. And then I heard a second person say the exact same words. And let me tell you two things. One, it's good sometimes when you hear a pastor say the same words as another pastor if they're from the Bible. But when you hear people start to say, you know, I used to read the Bible differently than I read it today, and I praise God that he's revealed new things to me. And it's like, but you've been a preacher your whole life. What were you reading before? And I, I pick on this because you might say, well, Matt, that's, that's not unfair because I've grown in how I read the Bible. Yeah, but do you write best-selling books? And then when you realize what you were saying before was wrong, do you still profit off them? I watched all these preachers that were all exposed in this documentary start to say, man, I repent of the way I used to preach and then preach the exact same thing, profit off the exact same things, keep their ministry built the exact same way because what they care about is looking good. What they care about is not repentance, it's rebranding because that's what our culture values. It doesn't matter if you do right or wrong, it matters how you sell it. And, and it is such a huge thing in the States. It's such a huge thing in our culture. One of, if I, man, I could rant about this for hours and I know I need to stop. I just looked at the time for the first time in a while. But, but let me tell you, I see all the time on Instagram and on Facebook and on all these different things, people who post things that are like, man, this picture's perfect, but if you saw what was behind it, you'd know it's not always the real me. And it's like, all right, then post the other picture. Like we sell ourselves as something that we are not. And when we do that, we miss out on the whole point of what we are called to. This Bible adjacency, I want to just draw your attention to it over and over because it's so deadly. And for all of you out there, what I can challenge you in is, I don't want to tell you, only listen to me, only listen to Rich, only listen to Tim. What I want to tell you is listen to the people that, that you're being influenced by. Pay attention to what they say and ask yourself, are they rebranding or are they repenting? Because these people are the, the massive, they are the most looked at in the world in regards to Christian teaching. And a lot of them are not even trying to preach the Bible. And the problem is, is because they're so influential, because they look good, because they sound good, because they're polished. People don't have the discernment to think, but what are they saying? And so that influences the culture and it influences the church. I have friends who are missionaries overseas that the word of faith movement has caused so many problems for their church because people came into their church from the United States and talked to the people in this Italian church that they were in about how great their pastor was from back home. And all of a sudden they had people at their church that were listening to this pastor. And this pastor does not preach anything like what is in the Bible. He preaches nonsense, but says the name of Jesus a lot. And he's a Simon the Magician. And their church had to root this out. And it breaks my heart that that's what's being exported to another nation from, from our nation. And it just makes me mad. 
And church, what I want to tell you is that this idea of rebranding versus repentance, the, the final challenge I have for you is that repentance means that we willingly own. The woman who told me last week, I felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and I said no. I felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit again, and I said no. Her response at the end of that story was, I cannot stay where I'm at. And that's repentance. It's rebranding if she never does anything different because repentance is actions-based. Rebranding is selling yourself. And we've got a whole culture of people really good at selling themselves in the United States. And what we need to do is we need to live lives of repentance. And we need to not fear what's going to happen when we repent and allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. But we need to say, I want this even though it stinks. It stinks to have to say, man, I messed up. But then when you say that in light of what Jesus on the cross did and the resurrected king did, and you recognize how God is working in your life, there's a lot of good in it too. Because then we say, it wasn't by me, it wasn't my money that led me to this, it wasn't anything that I could do, but it was done for me. And praise the Lord, because I could have never done this myself. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, that, that we did not have to try and sell ourselves to something else, but we could accept that forgiveness of sins. And we thank you that he rose again to prove it was true. And he, he rose again to offer us a way to follow after him and after you, that we can have right relationship with you, that our hearts can be right before you. And Lord, we recognize that it is hard to live that way but we pray that we would. Lord, I pray for everyone here who is maybe listening to this and saying, man, I'm really good at rebranding myself. Lord, I pray that you would bring us to a place of repentance. It, it starts with the church. I watch our nation not repent, and I think, church, we must lead it. We must model it. We must be those who humble ourselves and pray to the Lord. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would be working in our hearts I pray that you would be rejecting our attempts to sell ourselves or rationalize or justify ourselves because we do it, I do it. I, I don't want to admit, Lord, how far I am from you sometimes or how far I feel from you or how I'm, I'm not living in the life you called me to. But Lord, I thank you that you invite me to be there. I thank you that through your spirit, you empower us to live the lives of repentance and the lives of faith in you. And Lord, I pray that our testimony, our witness to this world would be one of a people who have repented from our sin and who follow after you because you've empowered us and that we would be witnesses to the people near and far of just the message that they can have in your name. And Lord, I, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, who hears this message that, and says, what, what does it look like for me? I pray that you would draw them to you, that your spirit would, would just prompt them, that they would respond and say, yes, I repent today. I know I am a sinner. I can't follow you on my own, Lord, but I, I recognize that through your son, I can be made right before you. And I, I pray, Lord, that, that anyone who said that prayer would just step in, that, that they would just boldly say, I'm not going to be who I was before. And, and Lord, I thank you that for all of us, that can be true. And I, I pray that we would live in that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <laughs> thank you. I, uh, I want to encourage you as we close. Um, as, as you go, if, if there are things you need to repent from today, don't, don't give yourself enough time to rationalize, to justify, to, to, to stand on your own 
and say, well, that was convicting. But now let's go watch football. You got like 30 minutes, an hour before games start. So, so I'd encourage you to go and talk to someone and confess. Talk to the Lord. Spend time in prayer to the Lord and just say, Lord, there are things I need to confess to you. As I was preparing the sermon, that's why I did last night because there were things I realized were on my heart that the Lord was drawing to my attention as I was preparing a sermon and ignoring the prompts of his spirit. And so don't leave today and say, I'll work on that later. Don't say, I'm going to wait till small group. Say, Lord, how have you been convicting me? And respond, go in peace.